we're in chapter five in our study of the book of Romans. Now, what is occurring in chapter five is uh, the beginning of a discussion that's going to last all the way through uh, the beginning of chapter nine. What Paul is doing now is he's beginning to help us understand if you are justified, and you all know what that means, you've been declared righteous by God, the righteousness that you have that defines your identity, defines who you are, is an alien righteousness. What I mean by that is it's Christ's righteousness applied to your life by faith. And he's beginning to talk, okay, now, so what? What are the effects of this? So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, you have that very important word, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now that's the theme, that's the thesis, that is the vital center of the book, doctrinally, justification by faith. I, I know you all know what that means, I'm not going to say any more about it, but we've been talking about it for several weeks now. But he summarizes three key results of our justification. First, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that word peace in, in Greek is Irene. We get our word, our, our name Irene from that. My daughter-in-law is named Irene. But the, the Hebrew word is shalom. And they both have the same meaning. We have peace with God, meaning, what does that mean? All things are settled. There is no longer anything between you and God in terms of your position, in terms of your identity, in terms of who you are. Peace with God. Shalom with God. Now, that in and of itself is profound. But for a Jewish person reading this, it's, it's an almost immeasurable truth for them. Because throughout the entire history of the people of Israel, one of the major sacrifices they had, and you might remember this, is the peace offering. That usually followed the burnt offering. You have to go back to Leviticus to study this. But anyway, you have the peace offering. And the peace offering, and that's exactly what it means, shalom offering, you would end that and sit down and have a meal. And the language in the Hebrew back in, in the book of Leviticus is it is a meal of fellowship with one another as the covenant people of God and with God. It's a marvelous illustration that there's no barriers anymore between you and God. So Paul's bringing that truth from Old Testament teaching in one of their offerings into the new covenant teaching. You have peace with God because and I'm, I'm expounding on this a little bit, but you're, you're, I think, very aware of this, because of the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Secondly, he says, through whom, in verse 2 now, chapter 5, through whom we also have obtained access by faith into his grace. Now, there's that word access. That's a, a very important term in the book of Hebrews. But now we have access to God, but he's not, he doesn't put it that way. Access by, God, by faith into his grace. And you, you probably are thinking, why does Paul put it that way? Access by faith into his grace. Well, let's review a couple of things. If you've been in my classes over the years, we've talked about this in a variety of different ways. 
God always deals with us in grace. You've heard me ask this question. Aren't you thankful God does not deal with you only on the basis of justice? Amen. If he dealt with you and me only on the basis of justice, there would be absolutely no hope for us. But God deals with us on the basis of grace. There's his, there's his common grace. Jesus talks about that, for example, when he says, the sun does not only shine on the righteous, it also shines on the unrighteous. Rain does not only come for the righteous, it comes for the unrighteous. That's God's common grace. There's his saving grace, which is what the theme of this book is. And then there's his, his sustaining grace, where he sustains us in our walk with him after we put our faith in his son. So what, what Paul is talking about here, it's actually quite marvelous. We now have access to this life of grace. God owes us nothing, offers us everything in Christ. So that's the second key result of justification. The third, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the third result is joy, which has content. Joy, you're, you're rejoicing or you're joyful about something. There's a reason for that. Why are you joyful? And he says, because of the hope we have. Now, hope is one of those very important New Testament words. It's all over the place. Paul likes to put faith, hope, and love together, which you, you've seen, I'm sure. But let's think for just a minute about hope. And it's important that you connect hope with that little phrase that, that follows at the end of verse 2, of the glory of God. Hope of the glory of God. And you, you, you now immediately, when you, you see that, you immediately think of the future. Because hope, I mean, I think you would agree with this, hope is a future-oriented word, isn't it? You have hope about something. You, you, have, you have hope that your, uh, I don't think any of you are farmers, and maybe you were at one time farmer, but anyway, you have hope that your crop's going to be a good crop this year. You're not going to know that till October or maybe November or whatever, or whenever you do your final harvest. But the point is, that's hope. It's a future-oriented word. But when hope is connected to God, it's, a, it's an, I'm going to define it the way one of my professors used to define it. It's an expectancy with desire. You expect something to happen based on what God has said, and you want it to happen. Amen. You see what I'm saying? Expectancy, or you could maybe use anticipation with desire. Now, what he says is the glory of God. And that is, and I hope you're following me here, that is one of the elements of our salvation. It's called glorification. When we are glorified, that occurs when Christ comes back for us, we get our new bodies, and so on. So Paul is dumping in this in these two verses, dumping some profound truth for you and me. But it kicks off since we have been justified by faith. We have peace, we have access, we have joy rooted in our hope. You and I have a reason to get up every morning. We have a reason to keep going. We have a reason to endure. Because Jesus made some promises to you and me. And among many, many, many promises he made, John 14 is kind of the place to start. He promised to come back to us. 
I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When I've done preparing a place for you, I will come back for you. That is a that is a wonderful promise that for 2,000 years has given Christians a reason to get up in the morning. Hallelujah. Today might be the day Jesus comes back. Yes. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't turn on the news too much. I just read it. But when I watch the news, I'm glad I have hope because, I mean, you, you, last night, Peggy turned it on for just a short moment, and you had a, a disaster. You had the Ukraine war. You had a whole bunch of stuff out of place. I mean, on, on, by the time you're done after 20 minutes, you're like, oh, my goodness. So the best thing for you and me to do is turn it off and put on music or read scripture or just have a conversation with your wife yeah. instead of watching the, the sparing news. And I, obviously we need to be informed, but my point is, Hope is not gained from the circumstances of life. You agree with that sentence, don't you? Say that again. Hope is not gained from the experiences of life. Right. It's gained from the promises God has made to me and to you. Uh, Jim, you also connect this with Peter when you um, talk about connecting hope with glorification, right? Yes, you mean uh, Peter's writing. Uh, yes. yes, that's right. That's exactly right. So, I mean, in, in a sense, verse 1 and 2 are, are just a summary. It's a summary of what is, you know you could put after verse 2. See the whole New Testament. Because <laughs> the whole New Testament develops all this stuff. But he summarizes it in three key thoughts or key ideas. So, I mean, I... I, I don't know if you have any questions. I assume you don't, because this is basic stuff. We've talked about this many, many other times. But he does something else now. He does something else with verse 3. I've written some things on the board here. He gives another reason to rejoice. And this is the like the 100,000-foot view of our lives from God's perspective. Not necessarily your perspective or my perspective. But this is God's perspective. Notice how he puts this, verse 3. Again, I read from the ESV translation. Yours may be a little different in terms of one or two of the terms. What, what chapter is it now? We're in 5, chapter 5 of Romans. Verse 3. More than that, we rejoice. Okay, now he's already said we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's future-oriented. But he says there's something else. More than that, we also rejoice about something that's happening to us now. We rejoice in our sufferings. And what follows is a causal participle, because we know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So what I did on the board, and those of you that are online, all I did was write these four words and put an arrow between each one of them. And so he's giving us, he, Paul, is giving us God's perspective that should cause us to adopt God's perspective. Now, I use the word afflictions here on the board. The ESV uses the word suffering. I, I prefer to translate it afflictions because suffering, sufferings almost always we think of physical suffering. You get COVID-19, you have a heart problem or whatever. Afflictions is a larger 
a term that captures a little bit of a larger, it can be lots of different things that happen. The circumstances of living in a fallen, broken world. I don't need to explain that sentence, do I? The circumstances of living in a fallen, broken world. There are going to be accidents. There's going to be tragedy. There's going to be unexpected things that happen. There's going to be hurt, physical, emotional. That's the reality of living in a fallen world. So that's the term that he captures here. Afflictions. Listen to what he says. Afflictions, suffering, produce endurance. What does the word endurance mean? That was not a rhetorical question. Power to last, power to get through. Good. Power to last, power to get through. Power to hang in there. Another synonym for it can be persevere. Listen, afflictions, and this is really a hard truth, but afflictions toughen you up for the next blow. Yes. Uh, nobody said amen to that. <laughs> Who wants to say amen to that? I don't want to say amen to that. I won't say amen to that, but that's true. Afflictions toughen you, toughen you up. And then he says endurance produces character. In my Bible, I put a little carrot and I put proven character. It may or may not be right for me to do that, but that's, I think, what Paul is saying, that afflictions produce endurance, which produces character. Character that's developed and proven in the tensions, difficulties, unexpected trials, the unexpected tragedies of life. It toughens us up and develops our character. This is the theme that's developed through the New Testament. This is a theme that is, that is enhanced throughout the New Testament. Come to understand something. You come to Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean you're not going to get sick. and doesn't mean you're not going to experience tragedies and difficulties. What it does mean is you now have the promise of Jesus Christ. I will be with you always, with to the end of the day. And you have the promise of James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? And he develops it in the rest of that paragraph in the book of James. This is how God develops our character. As a matter of fact, this is the curriculum for spiritual growth. All of you have probably said this to the Lord. I want to drop this course and register for another one. I don't like this course. If that's your curriculum for growth, I want to drop it. I want to go into another area of study. And God's response is, there is no other area of study. This is how I will develop your character. I once had a pastor friend of mine who, uh, he, he's a typical man. I think all of you can identify it. I don't mean this to sound like a sexist statement, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. Quite often, men are impatient. Men don't like to, I don't know how you, I do not like to wait in a line. I will organize sometimes a shopping trip so I know there will not be a long line. Because I don't like to wait in a line. I still, I mean, I've walked with the Lord since 1972. I still 
feel those pangs of impatience while I'm waiting in a long line. There's a red light. You're suffering. I'm suffering for the Lord. This is suffering for Jesus. It really isn't. But anyway, my friend, who is a pastor, my friend says, goes back in the Marusha, he says, I really am struggling with impatience. It's been an area of my life, all, all of my life. So I'm praying that the Lord will help me develop patience. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, how do you think the Lord develops patience in him? He's going to wait lots of lines. He's going to be in frustrating situations where patience is only developed in the cauldron of frustration. And that's really a good sentence. Patience is only <laughs> developed in the cauldron of frustration. That's really a good sentence. Somebody write that down and give me a... <laughs> I don't usually say something that's that profound. But anyway, isn't that true? That's what Paul's getting. I used a really silly illustration, but that is one of the fruit of the Spirit, patience. So if God is going to develop the proven character with the quality of patience, He's going to put us in a lot of situations. We have to learn that. And my dear wife, when I am experiencing one of those frustration moments, always says, honey, God is just at work in your life. <laughs> and I always say, thank you, sweetie. That's really a wonderful truth that you remind me of. So when we plan to go out to dinner early, I don't have to wait those lines. Interfering with his training. <laughs> well, no, Bill, what you're doing is you are learning from the experiential situations of life wisdom and discernment. Amen. You want to learn wisdom and discernment. How can I avoid situations of frustration? Go early. Um, well, anyway, that's a good illustration. <laughs> and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. You're, you're planning in such a way. Where you avoid, that's, that is wisdom. It's intersecting the Old Testament idea of wisdom with the New Testament practices of sanctification. That's one of the things that Paul's saying. And you're learning from that because to avoid frustrating situation is wisdom. So that Satan does not have then an opportunity to exploit that situation. <laughs> but then he adds one, one additional, he says, Proven character produces hope. Now, the, the way in which he develops this is keying in on the previous verse where he mentioned hope of the glory of God. So what Paul is doing in verse 3 and verse 4 is helping us to understand that hope is something God develops in our lives. It's not just some abstract theological idea out there tied with the return of Jesus Christ as he promised and all end time stuff. It's very, very much a practical aspect and dimension of life change, of transformation. Because, and uh, I, I, th I think I'm the oldest man in this room, but maybe not. No. <laughs> Probably not. You guys push back on. Well, I know Woody is eighty-one. Is that I'll right? Be eighty-six. Not You'll be eighty-six. Whoa! At one time you're eighty-one. Now you keep no, you keep no. adding. Well, I because when we were studying Moses and we were at that point, I think you were eighty or eighty-one. Or something. But anyway, when you 
the the longer the longer we the longer we are walking with the Lord, or let's put it another, the older we're getting chronologically, the more the hope of the future centered in Christ becomes real. It's not just an illusion. It's real. Yes. My uh, my dad and mom are with the Lord. My wife's mom, they all died within three years of one another. But anyway, each one of them, all three of them, in those last, well, in my mom's case, almost two years, but in those last months of their life, what they all said, I just want to go home. Amen. I just want to go Amen. home. Now, and what they meant by that is, I mean, they were they were all ill. You know, they were in their midnight. My mom, wife's mom was in the mid nineties. My dad was ninety three. My mom was ninety two. Anyway, they were in the nineties. They lived a full life, but they were tired. They were sick. Just want to go home. Hallelujah. And so that's the hope that Paul's talking about here: living life in a fallen, broken world, going through this process. Afflictions produce endurance that toughens us up to handle the next affliction. Produces the kind of character, the proven character. And I always like to think of the fruit of the Spirit. That's a wonderful summary of the character God's developed in our lives. There's nine quality traits. But as God's working through all those, and through time, as we get older and older and older, that hope becomes more real, becomes more energizing, more empowering, because it keeps us going. And so this, another way to put this, as I mentioned when I was quoting from James there, this is God's curriculum for us. This is God's plan for us. This is how he does it. Let's put it another way. This is how transformation occurs. This is how God transforms us. And always remember Galatians 4.19, Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.16, all mention this, for example, that God's goal for us is to become like his son, transforming us into the likeness of Christ. We're Amen. becoming like Christ. Yes. This is how God does it. Thank you, Lord. And, and where are we there? there? Is, are we being sanctified? Or are we working towards the glorification? Both, both are true. Both are true. And, and that's another way to put it, because transformation, it's a New Testament word, but it, transformation is a summary of sanctification. It's that process of being conformed. And the goal is glorification when we receive our, our, our new bodies and so on. So, this, verse 4 and, and verse 5, really verse 3, verse 4, and into verse 5 are very important verses reminding us of how God transforms us. And you're probably like me many days. I don't particularly like this. I just want to sit in my rocking chair and become holy. <laughs> That's not how it works. All right, everybody with me? Any guys online? You with me? Do you understand what Paul's doing here? He's keying in on that phrase at the end of verse 2. Hope of the glory of How does this? This is not an illusion. It's real. And this is how God develops that, transforms this. And then in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame.
That's it's a strategic silence here. That's a funny way to put that. Hope does not put us to shame. Remember, hope is a future word. So it's a word about the future, whether it's hope about tomorrow morning or hope about the end when Christ comes back and all of that. Because listen, when Christ returns for us, we get our new bodies and so on. The purpose of this is not shame. The purpose of this is glory. You understand? He is not, God is not shaming us into conformity with his will. He is motivating us by this process. He does not have shame as our destiny. We are not going to stand before him ashamed. We stand before him because we're righteous in Christ. We have been justified. Those who have rejected the grace of God in Christ will stand before God and be ashamed. Right? Because they have rejected the grace of God, and they will stand before God guilty and ashamed and will face eternal separation from the Lord. And so it's, it's, it's an odd way, but look at the rest of the clause of verse 5. Not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Holy Spirit, the sign of the new covenant. We are his temple. He indwells us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through, could translate that by means of, the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The mark of God's people, the mark of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit, not Torah, not the law, but the Spirit. And that is well, let me put it this way. That is one of the identifying markers of God's love for us. His spirit that he's given to us. All right. Okay, everybody with me? Yes. You didn't say much about verse 1 which is a transition in maybe this letter to me, that we now have proven that we're justified through faith. Yes. God, our Lord Jesus Christ said, we're not going to argue about that anymore. I'm done with that discussion. We're done with that. Do you want to argue? <laughs> no, but I mean, I talked a little bit about... Saying, we're done with that. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a subtle thing. Yeah, he's just... He, he, he's summarizing, and as I think I mentioned it, in verse 1 and 2, he's summarizing what the whole New Testament tells us. But to me, that faith thing, okay, we've talked about that forever in a lot of places. I'm done with it. I'm not going to bring it up. You're not going to bring it up. And we're going to move forward. That's right. That's right. Because things are settled with God. That's what shalom means. Things are settled with God. You don't have to keep... I think I told you this guy, when I was just getting started in, in ministry and all that back in Pennsylvania, there was a guy in, in our church. He came up to me one Sunday morning and said, I got saved last night. For, and I can't remember. I think his number was for the 32nd time. And I remember I looked at him. I thought, well, okay. I mean, I was a pretty young buck. 
in, in terms of spiritual leadership. And I mean, I, I didn't exactly know what to say to him because it, in that part of Eastern Pennsylvania, it was in the summertime, there was a, always a tent meeting, a revival tent meeting. They would come through the town and you know, all that. And some of you are old enough, you might remember some of that used to be a, a, something that would occur every summer. But anyway, and so he, was, he, was a, he was a rascal. He really was. He was quite a sinner and all that. And so he come to faith in Christ and in about three weeks, give it all, go back to drinking and carousing and all that. And then he'd feel guilty and he'd go and get saved again. That is, a, that, is a, that is an unbiblical way to look at the spiritual life. Because if you've been justified by faith, you now begin the new life in Christ. But that process of sanctification means you start to put to death the things of the old life. And so this guy had absolutely no peace, absolutely no stability. There are a lot of other things that he needed to get done in his life. But that's, and I like how Bill put that, this is settled. We don't have to keep going back to this. You don't go back and start, you know, like in a, in a game you play with your children and grandchildren, and you start your button, go back, start at the beginning. No, you don't have to start at the beginning. Wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, you are to, and this is the words of Paul in Philippians 2, 13 and 14, or 3, 13 and 14. I press on. I do not look back. Yes. That's your perspective and my perspective. Jesus' blood took care of the past. I don't look back anymore. Amen. I press on to the high calling of the prize in Christ Jesus, my Lord. What Paul says there in that passage. That's a good comment, Bill. Thank you. All right. Now let's move into the last part of this before he gets into another issue. <laughs> but it's, it's in this, this section that starts with verse 5. For while we were still weak. Now, he does, the, the Greek word there's asthene. It doesn't mean physical weakness where you're tired after working all day or whatever. It's a spiritual weakness. It's a moral, spiritual weakness. At the right time, God died, excuse me, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. All right, now he's reminding us again. He's moving into a second key result of justification. But he's reminding us once again that Christ Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. And that Christ Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners is an illustration of God's love for us. Yes. And because Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, which shows God's love for us, as we appropriate that work by faith, end of verse 9, we are saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved in what sense? We will not experience judgment. Father judged Jesus, so he doesn't have to judge us. You and I, Paul writes this in, in his second letter to the Thessalonians. God 
has not destined us for wrath. You and, uh, at the end of verse 9. Okay. You and I, our destiny, now that you put your faith in Christ, our destiny is not the wrath of God. We will not experience the wrath of God. Hallelujah. You and I may experience in our walk with God his discipline, but his, that's, a, that's an important pedagogical work. Yeah. That is to train us, to correct us, to transform us. But we will never experience his wrath. Hallelujah. And so that's, he's saying that because you have been justified and Christ died for us, even while we were at sinners, et cetera, et cetera, at the right time, those words, verse 6, weak, ungodly, verse 8, sinners, Verse 10, enemies, all of that is a part of our past. And because of the love of God, which has shown us in Christ Jesus, we will never experience his wrath. Why? Verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled. It's a very, very important word. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Yes. Now that word reconciled, it's, it's a verb here. It is also used as a noun in reconciliation. It's a major theme of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians as well. But reconciliation or reconciled as a verb is a unique term because let's, I'll explain it in this way. So just try to follow me if you can. Let's suppose Fred and I get into an argument, okay? And that argument is a pretty bitter argument. It's, per, it's a pretty intense argument. And our friendship is broken, okay? And he and I no longer have any connection whatsoever. Uh, uh, he doesn't get me a cup of coffee like he does every Wednesday. Uh, he, he doesn't want anything to do with me. I don't answer his emails. So, I mean, we have no relationship whatsoever. But then Ed, knowing both of us and knowing both of us well, Ed wants to be a mediator, and he brings both of us together for coffee and so on. So Fred and I both move back. We both move because we have both broken the relationship for lots of reasons, okay? But Ed brings us back, so we both move to a point at the center, and we're reconciled. That's not the word that's used here. Because the word that is used here is God did not move. We moved from him. So God takes the initiative to bring us back to him. And that goes, you go to Genesis 3 to see that break when the human race chooses to join the rebellion against God. But God doesn't move. God's not the one who broke the relationship in Genesis 3. And God makes the move to bring us back. And so that word reconciled to God, God brought us back. How did he do that? By the death of his son. That is the key, God's movement, because reconciliation is no longer a legal term or a forensic term. Reconciliation is a term of friendship. So God is now, or Paul is now moving from the legal discussions about justification by faith and so on, and he's now saying one of the effects of this legal change is a friendship change. You're reconciled to God. He has brought you back through the death of his son. We now can have an intimate relationship with him. That's why Jesus Christ says, 
in the upper room discourse. I now call you friends, which is that's an astonishing word that God can call you and call me friends. We're not alienated from him anymore. He's brought us back. We're now his friend because of what Christ did for us. Much more, notice he goes on. Reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now here again, you have to look at that word saved. Because remember the word saved Sojo is a normal word for that, or the noun soterion, always has three meanings, justification or sanctification or glorification. Which one do you think it is here? Now that we are reconciled, which is the result of justification, shall we be saved by his life? Yes. Glorification? But there's an element of sanctification as well. Because remember, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, he's now alive, he's been resurrected, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. One of the things he's doing for us at the right hand of the Father is praying for us, he's interceding for us. First John chapter 2, verse 1, he is our paracleton, our advocate. So that sanctification culminating in glorification is a result of his resurrected life. His death brings about reconciliation because we apply that substitutionary death by faith. His resurrection, his ascension, throne in at the right hand, all of that is a key process, a key aspect of sanctification. We are sanctified by his life. See, Paul, in, 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 in verse 10 there, he's pulling it all together. In one verse, he's got a lot of theology. We were the enemies of God. Remember those words we just were enemy, ungodly, weak, sinners. Now, we're his friend. Justification is about legal, a legal forensic aspect. Reconciliation is about friendship. We're God's friend. More than that, he's almost done. Verse 11, more than that. So he said at the middle of verse 10, much more. Now the beginning of verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice. Some translations have we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. And the word received from the Greek word lambano, it means we receive it as a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. We didn't deserve it. But we received the gift. My Remember, I always said this way. You picked up the pen on the table. You picked up the gift. And so he said, again, one of those aspects, maybe a better word, one of the results of justification is reconciliation. We're now the friend of God. All right. I got atonement here. Is that proper to use? They have atonement for. You mean at the end of verse eleven? There. Yes. Really? Yes. What translation are you reading from? Do you know? Uh, 
I did a Catholic book. I just bought it because I had an extra Bible. Uh, Lord Fred King King James Bible. Ah. Oh. Our uh, services ministry, it could be it though. Um they should be there though. That's well I don't want to be that dogmatic. That's not the best way to translate that word. Okay. Uh, it really isn't. That, that it really because in sixteen eleven that Greek word had a little bit when you bring it into English had a little bit of a different meaning. And they translated it Talmud. But in two thousand because well, I'm not going to say it. But it's probably a better translation is reconciliation. Okay. I do not want to sit in judgment of the 1611 fathers. They did a great job. But uh, language changes. And okay. We want to make sure we're using terms that accurately reflect what that Greek word means. Okay. <laughs> I, that surprises me. I uh, That really does surprise me that they wow. translate that at some yeah, no, I'm glad you brought it up. I really am. All right, now. Yeah, please. Hypothetically. Yeah. Since we're talking about reconciliation, got that young child, eight, nine, makes a sincere confession. Life intervenes and they move away from God. Stay that way till they pass away. Mm. You're now at the funeral and the relatives come up and you have to provide them comfort. Where's my mom? Where's my sister? They missed out on some of the sanctification, some of the benefits, but they did make mistakes in the spirit profession. God doesn't move, let him change what he said, still make a promise. I know what I'm going to say. I know what I have said. Because of the hope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bill, there are two, there are two things there that are always hard when, when you have a scenario or situation like that uh we assume whatever age of that uh, child was five six seven we assume it was genuine faith. it may not have been but we are assuming it's genuine if it's genuine and god i mean when god knows the heart of that human being assuming it was genuine then that individual if it was genuine that individual's with the lord but in the language of 1 Corinthians 3, they made it, escaping to a building that was burning. I mean, they just made it. Now, that's, I would never say that to somebody. But, but if it was a genuine faith, the other aspect of that is that it would affect it, meaning they did not live a life of, of walking in love and obedience with the Lord. They missed a lot of they missed a lot of the blessings, but then they also will impact the rewards. Right. And we stand at the Bama seat of Christ. And that's a very complex subject, exactly what that means. But, I, you know, there are, um, Jesus intimates that there are levels of judgment in hell. There are levels of blessing in heaven. Jesus says that. Jesus intimates that. But then what you and I have difficult, okay, what does that exactly mean? If you've ever read Dante's Divine Comedy, Dante goes, and that was written in the year 1300, so that's a long time ago, but Dante has all these levels in purgatory, in the inferno, in hell, and then in heaven. 
And uh, it's just we don't exactly know what all that means. But a person like that, if that faith was genuine, I, I do believe they're with the Lord. Amen. Thanks for asking a non-controversial, non-difficult question. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing about that, too, and I, I and again, but I'll just mention it. If someone puts, and their faith is genuine, and they do not walk with the Lord in love and obedience, they are then, the, they are then going to be the object of God's discipline. God chastises, you know, the old King James Chancellor, the chastises. Chastises those, and and that's what Hebrews twelve says. God, God disciplines those whom He loves. It confirms that we're His child, just like a parent disciplines his own child. And so that individual, um, I believe, I would be right in saying this: during their life, they would have experienced the discipline of God, but they missed out. They missed out on no the blessing of walking with the Lord. Uh, quite honestly, it would have been a very miserable life. Very difficult, yeah. Yes, I mean, it really would have. Sim simplistic way to look at it would be that uh, the 99 are in the fold and, and Jesus is out looking for the He always sees so that's, that's what I, how I, my, I look at that as one that's never been in the fold. Or maybe, right. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Well, the in one sense it applies to you because if, however you think of God's electing grace, His His grace is is relentless in His pursuit of those who are His, and even those who uh, He disciplines, He disciplines out of love, and that lost sheep, bring that sheep back. Can we move into verse twelve? <laughs> We're just going to get started. It's only about ten minutes here. But I want to make sure that you see this, because next week we'll, we're going to start it, but next week we're going to really develop this. In verses 12 through 21, which is what we're about to start, Paul deals with something, and that something has two aspects to it, that threaten the hope of the believer. Now, we've, we've watched him develop this precious, wonderful aspect of hope we saw at the very beginning that the three aspects, three results of justification, peace with God, access to his grace, hope. But as you are going through the process of sanctification, as you are walking with God, your hope can be diminished by two realities. Your hope can be affected by two realities. Your hope can be diminished by two harsh realities. The continuing presence of sin and the reality of death. That can affect our hope. Hope is that expectancy with us. Sin, the presence of sin, and this is Paul is going to be developing this now until we get to chapter 9. He's going to develop these two things. How do we deal with sin, and how do we look at death in our lives? And to do this, he has to explain something. 
Now listen as I try to summarize this. He has to develop and help us to understand the relationship between sin and death. And he asked, in a sense, he has to help us understand how powerful both of these are, but how only Christ can take care of these two things. And so what he does is he goes all the way back to creation. And he goes all the way back to Adam. Now look at verse 12. And let's just see how far we can get. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. You see, there's two words, death and sin, sin and death. Who is the one man that he mentions in verse 12? Who is the one man? Adam. Adam. So he's taking us all the way back to creation. He's taking us all the way back to the beginning. And he's focusing on Adam. Through sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Now, let's review some things here. In God's original creation order, was death a part of God's creation order? No. Death is not natural. Death was not God's perfect plan. Death resulted from sin. Now, you, I know you know this, but let's just review it real quickly. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have, it's, it's, they're absolute, it's what theologians call absolute innocence. There's no guilt. They haven't done anything wrong. They haven't violated any God's moral standards, anything. They are God's theocratic steward. They're managing his world. They're taking care of the Garden of Eden, as it's called in Psalm. God doesn't tell them how to do it. He doesn't tell them what to do. It's yours. But you're moral creatures. In the center of the garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree. Were there ten commandments in the Garden of Eden? There was one. One moral law. One moral standard. Do you trust me? He says to Adam and Eve. Do you believe I have your best interests at heart? You're moral creatures. You're not all robots, automatons, that I just order you what to do and you do them in lockstep. No, that's not the way I created you. Do not eat of that tree because the day you eat of that tree, what will happen? You shall die. And death means two things. Death has two aspects in the Bible. Aspect number one, death is separation from God. Did Adam and Eve experience that the moment they ate? Yes. They experienced separation with God. The fellowship and intimacy they enjoyed with God was lost. Hell is defined as a place of eternal suffering. It's a horrible, horrible place, physically speaking, but it is also eternal separation from God. Death has a second aspect to us, a second dimension. 
It's the separation of the body and the soul. That's what happens when you and I die. Normally, our body goes into the ground or cremated, but our body goes into the ground or cremated, our soul goes to be with the Lord. That's for a believer. The absence of the body do present with the Lord, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5 8. So death has two aspects, but death is a death is not natural. It's unnatural. It's a perverted distortion of God's perfect, perfect plan. But because we're moral creatures, we have the capacity to sin. And Paul makes a statement here. Because Adam sinned, sin enters the world. Seven weeks ago, my grandson, Luca, was born. My grandson, Luca, was born with the guilt and corruption of Adam. Do you agree with that? My little, we were just with him yesterday. My little grandson, and seven weeks old, he weighs 12 pounds. He loves to eat. Like grandpa, he loves to eat. But no, I mean, it's good. I mean, it's good stuff. He's Down syndrome child, but he's doing really well. We're very thankful of the, the good things that so far have happened. But Luca's a sinner. It's like every one of you, when you were a little baby in your mother's arms or daddy's arms or whatever, you're a sinner. Sin comes into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. And you, I'm just reviewing how important this is doctrinally. When you look at Genesis 5, the first long genealogy, it's a boring chapter to read. You know, here and there, had, he got this, and he died. And he got this, and he what, What's the key phrase in Genesis 5? He died. That's what Paul's saying. Death spread. And every human being that has lived in recorded history, the 5,200 years of recorded history, every human being has died. Why? Because of sin. And sin and death just haunt us. Sin and death just press upon us. Verse 14. I'm still, uh, verse 13, excuse me. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Now that, I don't know if I'm going to have enough time to explain that. That needs to be explained. But let me look at verse 14 before we look at that. Yes, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now let's work our way back from that to verse 13. Their sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What does that mean? What was the transgression of Adam? I already talked about it. He knew the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He knew if he ate that he would experience eternal separ- he would experience separation from God and his body would die. Now, all the people from Adam to Moses did not have a specific command like that. God wasn't saying to 500 years after Cain, don't eat of the Charlie tree of the knowledge. He's not saying that to them. But what have we learned in Romans 1.18 through 3.20? 
They had creation. They had conscience. So those, those aspects doesn't mean they're guiltless. Doesn't mean, because what did he just say? Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, this is a simple question, but yet to answer it, you see something profound. Why did death reign from Adam? Why did every human being from Adam to Moses die? Why? And not go to heaven. Why not go to heaven? Well, not necessarily. Why did they die? Why did their bodies die? Why did they die? Because of sin. Because of sin. So Paul, is he, what he's trying to demonstrate very clearly here is the inextricable linkage between sin and death. Death is not natural. That's not what God's perfect design was. It entered the human race because Adam sinned. It was a consequence of sin. So he can then boldly declare death reigned. Everybody died from Adam to Moses. There are no exceptions to that. Now, it, Woody raised a really important question. That doesn't mean many of those that died didn't go to heaven. That's another issue. But he's just talking about physical death. Everyone died. And in 2022, everybody's going to die. Why? Because of sin. Right? I mean, it's, it's like for you and me to say, uh, duh. But this is, this is a really important issue for the person has not put faith in Christ, has not accepted the Lord, doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible. <clears throat> what Paul is declaring here, and what we must just be reminded of, death is not natural in terms of God's perfect plan. But death is a result of sin. So where death reigns, sin reigns. Now it's almost ten of, and I've got a quiz. Study David Abraham. So his his answer is there was faith. Oh yes, that's right, right. And many mm-hmm. people, Adam to Moses, will be in heaven, and, and so on. But that's I've yeah. got a quiz. It's all right. <laughs> Can we pick up on next week? <laughs> yeah, I really I I didn't deal with everything I'm in verse thirteen. Did. I was working yeah. my way backward, so I have mm-hmm. all verse thirteen to deal with yet. I will make sure we start there next week. But this is this is just a really, really powerful section. And I'm going to put some yes. things on the board tomorrow. I mean next week as well, comparing Adam and Christ. Because the next Adam, the new Adam, the second Adam, first was referred to it, is Jesus. And now Jesus undoes all this. And that's what's so not marvelous about the gospel. I gotta pray here. Father, thank you um, for the book of Romans. Thank you for the wonderful reminder in these first uh, 11 verses of of chapter 5 of the book of Romans of the the wonders of reconciliation, friendship with God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have brought us back to you. We can be reconciled with you, enjoy the friendship and intimacy with you. That was your original design which was your original purpose. That's why you created us, to have fellowship and intimacy and to walk with you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking the initiative and sending Jesus to make reconciliation possible. We are now uh, in an intimate, personal, friend-like relationship with you, the living God. That is an amazing statement, but that is true. Thank you, too, that through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the power 
We are saved. We are sanctified by his life. He has sent his spirit. He prays and intercedes for us. He is our advocate. That is one of the key elements of the process of sanctification as well. So we just close again this, this, this session with a reminder of how much we owe you, Lord. By your grace, which you've showered abundantly upon us, we have the possibility to be saved from judgment, to no longer experience your wrath, but to look forward with that expectancy, with desire, that hope that when Christ comes back, we will receive our glorified bodies and everything will be made new. And you will begin to remake this rebellious planet during your millennial kingdom. So we long for that. We look forward to that. We pray for that. Be with these men as they go their separate ways. I would help each one of them to be strong men of faith to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.